customer. And I think when you think about accessibility and ability to see a little bit more into that scoring methodology, that what's not there is as important as what is there. Say you've got an executive that wants to build your business bank book, and that's our objective for the month of April. Great. Where do you start? Well, let's get into segmentation. Let's get into scoring. And let's use that for our first calls as we try to think about building out some of that origination and really cross-sell to those customers based on what we know. Saves a ton of time. You're winning the best customers coming to you at the right time for the right product. I mean, that's that's where the magic happens. Welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred. You've turned into show number two, and we have a great one in store for you today. First up, we'll be joined by Heather Ryan Christensen and Elliot Spence to discuss all things Summer 23 release. Afterward, Dana and I give our perspectives on current Salesforce and banking news and trends in our Quick Takes segment. While you're listening to this podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast page and on Instagram at at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in, because our show is coming to you right now. This week for our main segment, Dana and I are excited to welcome Elliot Spence and Heather Ryan Christensen. Elliot's a former banker located in Cincinnati, Ohio, having previously worked at Fifth Third Bank and First Financial Bank. He's now a principal consultant with 21 Salesforce certifications, eight Encino certifications, and eight professional accreditations from Salesforce. I'm not sure how he has time for all of that. When not working, Elliot's officiating high school wrestling in Ohio, training for a marathon, or training on Trailhead where he holds over 1,000 badges. Wow, Elliot, tell me, how did you get all that done? Uh, So with the Trailhead side, my goal is always one a day. I try to get on there and do one a day. Now, when projects get busy and life gets busy can't do that i actually haven't you know completed a badge in quite some time now with summer 23 which we're going to be getting into that's going to be caused me to complete quite a few because i want to get caught up on the notes uh but then you know when work winds down i try to put a goal in front of me of doing something that i don't like to do and i hate running i really do always have because it dates back to my wrestling days as it was it was a punishment so i started running a little bit and i'm like you know Let's try a marathon. Let's see what happens. I did a half last year or so, and actually a week from today, a week from recording the show, I'm going to be doing the Flying Pig Marathon here in Cincinnati. Hats off to you, man. I always say, only if a bear were chasing me, and maybe not even then. Thanks for joining. I don't I don't even think then, Fred. <laughs> you're probably right. It's been a good run. Uh, and, and Heather, <laughs> uh, you're a former banking executive and chief revenue officer at ZFI. Uh, you're a graduate of Polytechnic State University at San Luis Obispo School of Business. Uh, and in your free time, you can be found chasing your one-year-old son and coaching T-ball. Now, that sounds a lot more fun than running a marathon. Yeah, a lot less cardio, although my step count is surprisingly high. So um, taking that, again, one step at a time with that little guy, you know what? I'm sure. My, my son is uh, 18, almost 19. And it's all I could do to make him walk more than about 15 steps back and forth to the kitchen. So uh, enjoy that step count while you can. Uh, but thank you both it. for joining us. Dane. Yeah, so I thought we would kick off nice and easy by asking, what is the one feature 
in summer 23 that you are most excited about? Heather. Uh, well, I know we'll talk a little bit about the density of uh, all Salesforce releases. So this is actually a very difficult question to answer. Decision optimization, although it's in beta, is probably the most interesting to me. I know there's a lot that we all have to learn and, and a lot of sandbox plays um, still to be done to, to really see where the, the capabilities lie there. But it's definitely one that's most relevant, right? We're talking about chat GPT constantly, um, how AI is going to change the world. Although we've been thinking about this for many, many years, those that have played in the, the Einstein space, but it's really great to see Salesforce dive right in and think about optimizing some of the capabilities we already have within the Einstein suite when we think about um, propensity, scoring, chatbot blocks, like how to make a lot of this easier and more approachable for um, institutions we work with. So that's definitely one of those pieces that from, you know, case management to um, cross-sell capabilities, how we think about um, everything under the sun, even even a lot of um, some of that risk mitigation, right? I know you're all all too familiar with. These are kind of the, the building blocks to really make Salesforce an actionable place for AI that I'm really excited about. I will add like a 1.5 to that. Um, really, really excited to see more investment within um, customer segmentation or member segmentation. I think that's a, an area where we think about, you know, a decade ago, I was doing that completely manually. And, you know, you could spend an entire year trying to segment your customers to actually put together actionable campaigns, um, think about touch, think about branch modeling, all sorts of, of those pieces. So looking at the ability to turn that on and then pull relevant data sets, think about some of those list capabilities. I think, gosh, the data set records at 10,000 or something along the like really, really interesting. And then layering on um, propensity modeling to, to some of that is really exciting to me to think about um, elevating conversations and, and elevating some of that customer touch. Hey, definitely agree a hundred percent. I think that decision optimization is something that I think has been a feature that's a long time in coming. I, at one point, thought I was going to have a career more a focus around uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. I actually went to Northwestern uh, and have almost completed a master's in, in data science. And one of the things that I always found concerning about the, the iScience series of functionality is kind of the, the black box nature of it. The fact that it is kind of a a mystery. Uh, you can kind of look at the recommendations and get a sense that they're directionally correct. But I think with the optimization of feature set, and like you said, Heather, you know, a ton of, of time needs to be spent playing around within the sandbox and kind of see what those results look like. Uh, but I think this is really going to add some of those missing pieces that are going to help a lot more companies feel comfortable in relying on those recommendations. I don't know, Elliot, what are your thoughts? You know, that's something I've been diving into much, much more. We were mentioning chat, chat, chat GPT and, you know, AI, and we see it more and more on projects with, we have all this data at hand. We have all of this information available to us. How do we use it better? Um, or how do we use it better, more efficiently, you know, improve our customers, customer relationships using it, mitigate risk using this, that automation. And it kind of pivots into, you know, what I'm more, not necessarily more excited about, but it kind of falls into the same vein and reading through the release notes is the scoring framework available for financial services cloud. And this is something that 
you know, we have all this data in Salesforce. And if you're an organization that has, we have, you know, our financial account information in there. We have our customer information in there. We have all of this data. How do we better use it? And this is something that, you know, with it requires A, financial services cloud and B, CRMA, but powering those those both together to build this scoring framework. And it kind of comes in two phases is building the scoring framework or building this this information into a data set that tells us what are customers more likely to use, what what products would they most likely use based on what they're currently using or the current behaviors that we're able to decipher within that data, or are they more likely to churn based on data you have in a system. Um, so you're able to build that framework. Now, with this scoring framework, again, much like Heather said with the last one, getting into a sandbox and playing with it, how do we build this model? Salesforce does give you two like models that you can use, but obviously you're going to have to get in there and build your own model to give you that information that you need. But then based on that, based on those models or those data sets that come out of the scoring framework, you can build those actionable lists. So if you have, you know, your agents, call center agents or sales team on in Salesforce, you can build these actionable lists based on the prediction Salesforce provides to you that looks at, again, financial accounts, their account information, their case information that if you're if you have customer complaints or something like that coming into Salesforce, you know, it's artificial, you know, I don't want to say it's strictly AI, but you have a scoring framework now available to you that's going to help help you better identify opportunities, you know, on your customer base or who's going to potentially churn from the organization. Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. I'm curious, what do you think are some of the top use cases that you think people are going to be the most excited about when they get their hands on that feature? So it's it's cross-selling. That's that's what that's what jumps first and foremost to me that you have all this data in there. Maybe they bring over, you know, looking at it at financial accounts, they maybe it's their primary a wealth wealth management customer or they're primarily a retail customer. Or you have you see that they only have a mortgage with you. Well, based on those behaviors, how they're paying that mortgage or how they're um, you know, you know, they have a mortgage and maybe they have a home equity line with you, but a minimal deposit account. So based on all this information, what are the opportunities for cross-sell with them? Or, you know, as it calls out in the release notes, you know, likelihood to churn. So if they have deposits and they're taking large withdrawals out of that or taking big chunks out of that deposit account or savings, are they potentially going to churn? So it's identifying opportunities like that within the organization to re- retain customers or also cross-sell with them and grow the relationship much quicker than you traditionally would without the model. I love I love that. Do you mind if I step in, Fred? Well, by all means. I think Absolutely. I mean such a good good call out, Elliot. I think the there's a financial brand uh, article they published probably a couple of weeks ago on that white space quiet on propensity to attrit for a customer. And I think when you think about accessibility and ability to see a little bit more into that scoring methodology that what's not there is as important as what is there. And so getting to to get your hands dirty and, and play around with that to to kind of look at the data and the lack of data, um, to your point, to think about cross-sell capabilities or where you're going to see customers attrit. I mean, I think when I looked at that customer segmentation list calling, say you've got an executive that wants to build your business bank book and that's our objective for the month of April, great. Where do you start? Well, let's get into segmentation. Let's get into scoring. And let's use that for our first calls as we try to think about 
building out some of that origination and really cross-sell to those customers based on what we know saves a ton of time. You're getting the best customers coming to you at the right time for the right product. I mean, that's that's where the magic happens. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's something that we're asked about so much on different projects is, can you build me a report that's going to you know tell me who I need to contact and when, or who's going to potentially step, you know, a trip from our organization. And it's usually you have to build these highly customized reports that, you know, basically it's it's built on guesswork that we're doing or, you know, the organizations prepare or providing to us like, you know, customers with large withdrawals. Like, so we can do some of that, but this takes away that, you know, mostly guesswork and provides that you're building this this scoring framework and then Salesforce has taken it from there by by putting their predictions together based on the data that you provided. And then you can have you can have those reports available to you that are going to better help you service your customers. Again, it's it's something that it's FSC, but it does require CRMA to enable this feature. Elliot, you're such a good steward of Salesforce, calling out all <laughs> the license types. I love it. Yeah. It it definitely takes a lot to keep straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, CRM, for man. sure. Explain that. What is CRMA? Uh, so CRM Analytics. So it's it's changed names quite a bit within Salesforce from Tableau CRM to Einstein Analytics. And now whenever you hear CRMA, it's just a, a different license. It it used to be Wave back in the day. Yeah, it's changed branding quite a bit, but it's, a, it's an extra license type, which it's a, essentially a different product that enables a ton of different features with it reports, but it's dashboards that are available with it. With so you can bring in you can bring in data. You can run dashboards basically on data that's in Salesforce, but also outside of Salesforce. So if you have data that's in five different platforms or databases, you can bring those into Salesforce, build the dashboards based on that data without that data actually living in Salesforce. I was getting a little far afield from this release, but I have definitely seen a lot of trend towards banks in particular wanting to run their customer acquisition more and more out of CRMA, you know, basically leveraging that as the desktop that drives their daily activity. And the rest of Salesforce is primarily kind of a logging and kind of pipeline management, but CRMA is coming, you know, more and more to the front and center. And I I think it's a very robust tool set. Yeah, extremely robust. And it's something that you hear more and more about all the time. It's, It's a lot of organizations are using it. Absolutely. I'll, I'll share my favorite feature and I'm going to go the other direction and get a little, a little dorky, a little technical. I'm super excited every release with more and more flow features. And one of the ones that I'm super excited about is the fact that the HTTP callout action to go out and fetch data is now GA and they've gone beta to do HTTP posts. And so now declaratively inside of flow, you can go very easily, go fetch data and post data. And I think that's immensely powerful. I'm, I'm super excited to get my hands on that. I can think of a ton of use cases for bringing in that kind of data and making it actual on the platform without having to go and, and write your own APEC. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I'm a, I'm a flow nerd myself and I use it all the time, even before Salesforce started retiring workflow and now process builders, uh, summer 23, you can no longer build process builders. You can edit your existing ones, but with every release, Salesforce comes out with so much inflow. So it's almost getting to the point where you don't actually have to know a lot of code to get 
do things that are super powerful within Salesforce. And there's a ton of flow features that came out with this one. And there's, there was a lot in this summer release, but I actually think it was less that than you've seen in the past two or three releases with flow. Uh, but there still was a ton in, ton in it. And what you just mentioned are two that are extremely powerful. And like you said, it really eliminates you having to build your own Apex classes. You don't have to be a developer to get extremely powerful and doing those HTTP, the, the posts and everything. So yeah, it's an extremely powerful feature they released. It's funny because part of part of my thoughts there, friend, I've just been, I want to hear more on Omni and I want to hear more on how we can take advantage of that from a flow segmentation perspective. So um, really good, deep technical pieces. I'll take your word on on some of that. But, <laughs> you know, I, I again, going back to this changes in regulations that are coming for our industry having the the ability to kind of reconfigure change up how we're thinking about some of those process builds is so critical we think about doing more with less right now those are exactly the features that we have to be looking at for how can we do more with less and how can we react quickly to to this changing regulatory environment so that we are not caught on our heels yeah no that's that's absolutely spot on uh, I'm curious to shift gears a little bit. You know, there's a lot in here, and Salesforce has been around for, I guess, about 20 years, a little bit over 20 years now. Reading through the notes, what was the most duh feature? Like, what was the feature that you're like, I can't believe Salesforce has been around for 20 years and they didn't have this? What do you think? Elliot, any thoughts? Uh, there's quite a bit that I wrote down in this, in this vein around duh features. I would say the, the, two that jump out at me and actually there's probably three that jump out at me but number one they've been around 20 years the line that with this release you can now have the when you're building your page layouts a button that you can click and says you know you want to align the fields horizontally and that's one like when you think about if you read through the release notes you'll see what this is exactly but when you're building your page layout some fields on the page layout take up more space than the others think address fields or long text area fields because there's address, you got city, state, zip code, country, and then next to it, you have a phone field, which is only one line of data. Well, on the page layout, it's going to look super weird because one field takes up a lot more space than the other. So now you can click a button when you're building your page layouts and it says align these horizontally. So the page layout doesn't get all out of whack with those fields next to each other. They'll, the address field will take up the same amount of lines as your phone field. I, I love that you mentioned it. That is the exact feature that made me think to write this question because I read it and I was like, you know yeah, what? It's like, I, I can't believe Salesforce. I mean, obviously it hasn't had it, but I just couldn't believe that this is the new feature 20 years in. Yeah, I didn't even like, and I've seen it on page layouts, building them on projects and stuff. You look at it and it's like, oh, that looks terrible, but I can't do anything about it. And it, you never even thought to even put that in as an idea because it's just like, it's just an annoyance, but not something that jumps out at you. But it came with this. So now when you're building them, you can click a button, align them horizontally, and it fixes that for you. Uh, number two is uh, building dashboards. You can have filters at the top of the Salesforce out-of-the-box, like standard dashboards. You can have. You used to be able to have three filters, which seemed kind of like limited. Like, why can't we have more? So with this release, you can now have five. So those are the two I'll mention right off the bat. We can get into some others. Elliot, take it, taking the words right out of my mouth there. It's like, oh, guys, guess what? Five filters now. Let's let's yeah. bang the gong, have a, a character run out and cheer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's always 
it's always good to have more layers to, to pull through, but it is kind of funny how um, something so simple can can be revered. I think I'll, I'll add in, this isn't um, with a, a look back 20 years, but but the basics as we think about some of the product acquisition on the Salesforce side, that's the post to Slack button, calling out on that. It's like, <laughs> again, <laughs> should be a basics as we think about a lot of the the um, framework, although I'm glad to to have that. It's uh, kind of funny to see. Yeah, yeah you're, you're surprised it took that long to get in. Right, when when was the Slack acquisition finalized? I think it was we, three years ago. Yeah. I, I believe, yeah, if if not longer, at least there was talks of it. So, yeah. But here's summer. Time flies. Yep. Yeah, time flies. What do you guys, you know, apparently with this release, greater integration with Slack, what does that mean? Any predictions on that? I haven't done a lot with Salesforce and Slack myself. I mean, you know, I use Slack all the time. Um, but I mean, just when I envision it's thinking like if you're an organization that's using Salesforce and Slack and think of a financial services, you know, shop, obviously a big part of your business is referrals. And if I send you a referral or something in Salesforce, the biggest thing that usually happens is we set up like email alerts or notification, or maybe you don't see it till you get into Salesforce. But if you have Slack and Salesforce, usually you're not using your email for a lot of internal communication. It's, you know, usually Slack each other. So if I send you a referral, maybe it just, bam, it pops up in Slack. That's like one of the biggest things that, you know, I think of and I would automate if we had a bank that's using Slack and Salesforce. It's a lot of those things that you generally see email notifications or even um, custom notifications um, in Salesforce for. I would just deliver them right to a, them on, you know, have it pop to them on Slack or if they have a shared Slack channel with like mortgage, something like that all that notification would be delivered right there in, in Slack. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we hope to see, yeah, more capture from Slack, right? I think that would be great rather than more, you know, double entry. So I think there's a, a lot more that can be done there. But to, to Elliot's point, right, I think those working groups or rooms when you're talking about talking to your underwriters through loan origination, having them in one spot, having that communication, your appraisal, that's, you're, you know, you're all working kind of real time to get that done. But then that data capture being within um, Salesforce as you think about tracking some of that origination and then giving that transparency to customers, I think um, that flow will continue to get tighter when we think about Slack integration. Yeah, I think, I think both of those make a lot of sense. When, when I think about Slack, I continue to think about the, the real power is that is a completely different user experience form factor than Salesforce. And so I tried to think back to like the first time I looked at MuleSoft and I saw the, you know, the different layers of abstraction and then there's the endpoints and there's always Salesforce and then they have, here's your, your portal or your, your digital banking platform. And to me, Slack belongs right there alongside it. And that there's definitely situations where bankers and, and other people, especially people that spend a lot of time out of the branch and out in the field can use Slack as an interaction layer to Salesforce and other backend systems. So if you're really building kind of a abstracted API-based user experience layers, you can use Slack to go and reach into your load origination system and get the status of a loan in Slack and not have to go to Salesforce and not have to call, pick up the phone and call somebody back at the branch and ask them what's the status of this you know, particular loan. There's a, a number of use cases that I can think of where Slack is is able to 
to fill that gap. And then the bonus is when you find something that is out of sort, you can then use Slack to bring other people into the conversation in context and say, hey, this loan's been this loan's been in loan committee for a week. What's going on? Why hasn't this been approved? You know, and and you can get a lot of eyeballs on it and start moving things down the road. And I'd I'd love to see a lot more use cases for Slack that go that direction. Uh, I think that is a, a tremendous amount of power that is at the moment, you know, pretty much untapped. Yeah. So Fred, basically you're saying we don't need to talk about the Salesforce mobile app release note piece because Slack will <laughs> Slack will circumvent. I mean I think it's a both end. I mean, I I, lo- I love the enhancements that are coming to the mobile app. I love that you can finally do some things in the mobile app that have ultimately be done in in the browser experience before. But again, I think that if you're really going to get banks and other institutions to want to adapt Slack over other communications platforms, you have to stop thinking about Slack as a communications platform, right? You've got Microsoft out there basically giving teams away for free. And there's a lot of things that you could do with Slack and, and APIs is, is one where they are a hundred times more powerful than teams. And I think we would all in the ecosystem do ourselves a favor. If we spent more time talking about those and less about the straightforward, you know, collaboration, you know, communication use cases. Yep. You're spot on. Yeah. It's a keen, that's a keen observation. You know, coming back to summer, summer 23 release, is there anything that comes to mind that you find surprising? Anything unexpected? Um, one of, I mean, one of the things that has been asked about, and it's been an idea out there for a long time, uh, for like a feature, not even a feature, just an update in the, uh, on the FSC side, Salesforce still doesn't support three digits uh, in interest rates. So it's still two, although it's very common when... Yeah, you have like a 3.705 or something like that interest rate. Well, in Salesforce, those fields are still only two digits. So you can only have like an 8.05 or 8.95. So it doesn't support those three digits, which is a huge annoyance when you get into working with like mortgage shops or just like interest rates on like CDs or a savings account. So that's something that's not there yet, still not. And that's kind of like a surprise. Like how is this kind of like we were talking about with the line fields horizontally? How has this not been fixed? Like, so that's one of them that's kind of like a shock that it's still not here. And who knows when it will be. Hopefully, by next release, it becomes one of those duh features. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. It's like, how is this not there? So that's one that shocks me that it still hasn't been delivered in this release. Just, Elliot, are you just custom building? Right. To that's fix that? Like. No, not really. I mean, it's it's just something that you either have to round up or round down. It's not, you know, if it was a, if it was, this is their, the core within Salesforce, yes, you would custom build to try to resolve for that or have a resolve for it that way. But it's the out of the box fields don't solve for, or don't offer that. Painful. Yeah. What's your, what's your take on that, Heather? Like with your background to making, like I'm thinking 0.5. I mean, rounding up at that point, I'm like, wait a second. Like my wife and I, we manage finance. It's a game of inches. Oh, yeah. When game mm-hmm. 0.5 gets rounded up, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, you, you get the double. We, I mean, we've we've built out, and, and I've seen many customers customize some of that where it's a must-have for, you know, specific permission sets, and it doesn't have to be all-encompassing, but where that's kind of a requirement when you're having the right customer conversation for those folks that are really investing in 
Salesforce as the place everyone is operating in, you kind of you kind of have to. Um, you right. can't lose right. the customer trust on what they're looking at from a printout versus what um, what you're speaking to them live about. So um, I think there's a lot of a lot of those pieces that we continue to see improvement on the the Salesforce side to work for financial services firms. But oh yeah, you want the numbers got to be right. Yeah, that's that's, that's sure. something you absolutely have to get right. That's that's what I always called go to prison numbers. You know, you've you've got to represent you know customer assets and liabilities accurately. That's that's what always gets people in trouble. I know we've talked about it quite a bit. I want to make sure we don't leave anything major on the table. You know, Heather Elliott, anything else that you think is a showstopper or a feature that we would be remiss if we didn't call out? Well, I mean, one of the things that is at the top of mind that I use on just about every project now is Dynamic Forms ever since that came out. When Dynamic Forms came out, well, it only represented your desktop page layouts. Um, then with Winter 23, there's a lot more that came into Dynamic Forms, but it was still only uh, available you know, to represent your desktop layout. Um, obviously, you have Dynamic Forms, you have Dynamic Actions now, all available. Well, with this release, you have Dynamic Forms for mobile. And what that means is, and what dynamic forms are for anybody that doesn't use them, you really don't have to use your classic page layouts anymore. You can build your lightning layout that represents your record layout, but then you can dynamically choose to show sections or certain fields based on criteria what's on that page layout. So if you have multiple record types, you really, if you want to, only have to have one page layout. Um, and now it supports mobile as well. So it makes things a lot easier if you're have a shop that's big on the mobile app as well, and you want certain things to show if they're looking at mobile versus the desktop, you can align it that way. So that's a, I think that's a big win. It's a, it's a good call out, Elliot. I think I talked a little bit about um, just the, the Omni Studio and capabilities there. I think probably less even, not to go too off topic, but off, uh, um, outside of the release notes, right? It, it's just something I think we're not talking about, the capabilities enough. Um, I find in, in many conversations with executives, they're confused that it's even a part of FSC um, and definitely mm -hmm. want it to be used a lot more and show a lot of value, um, even in what's been rolling out in the past six months. So I think it's one to to double down on or look at both from a, a Salesforce admin perspective on on how to improve a lot of that slow um, writing. Uh, and and taking a, a look at Omni Studio. I'm I'm curious. I'm I'm a big fan of Omni Studio. I've loved the tool set since before Salesforce bought Velocity, and when Velocity was restricted from selling it into any financial services companies other than insurance companies. And I kind of wished for a lot of years that that banks and wealth firms had access to it. Um, I know what the line is, what the official line is, but I'm curious for both of you. As you're as you're talking with with customers uh, that are looking at Flow, and they're looking at Omni Studio, and they're they're curious about, you know, when do I use one? When do I use the other? How are you navigating those conversations? What kind of guidance are you giving? I mean, for me, it's if if it ain't broke, spend your <laughs> spend your time on on kind of net new and where you can think about some of those pivots. If if your um, flows are working as they are, I think that's fantastic but really looking at those where you've got processes that are continually changing as we talked about earlier um i think that's 
that's a huge one um, for customers. I know we're seeing that across treasury management, deposit acquisition, so many new capabilities when it comes to turning those on extremely quickly. Um, and that's where I would tell my customers and in working with Salesforce directly on how to talk about that is really focusing on um, what do you have to execute on with um, some degree of efficiency right now? Let's let's get that done. Yeah, I, t- I typically look at is it staying internal versus going external? Uh, because with Omni Studio, you're going to be able to A, bring in and utilize a lot more data from a lot more systems. Yeah, going out and grabbing data, pulling it back in using that for like decisioning and things like that. And you're also really going to be able to brand it however you want with Omni Studio. I mean, Omni Studio, I mean, it's super powerful um, to be able to do certain processes. The data doesn't necessarily have to be in Salesforce. Um, So you can go out and grab it from external systems, deliver data to external systems, brand it how you want it, and do a lot more complex automation. So um, if you're a shop and it, yeah, it's something that a lot of people don't even realize it's included with financial services cloud now. So if you're looking at um, building out things like a loan origination system, you want to be able to originate deposits and so allow your customer to go on your website and apply for a deposit account. And then based on that deposit, you want them to also be presented with certain um, loans that may be available to them or different offers. It's all possible within Omni Studio. That's not something that's necessarily can be done with Flow. Um, so if it's if it's like an internal thing, like I want it available just to my user base within Salesforce, I'm probably going to go with like a Salesforce Flow, no matter what it is they need, even if it's just a complex screen flow. Uh, but with Omni Studio, you have a lot more available to you. Great summary, Elliot. You know, with the with this release, what six over six hundred pages. And with all this talk lately of digital assistants, I wonder, like, is there a place for an app, a digital assistant, to help make sense on company release note? Um, but what techniques are you guys using now to, like, ingest all of this information and make sense of it or think about your customers and making recommendations about uh, putting them in a place to leverage, you know, so, some of these new offerings, et cetera? How do you, how do you keep up with that? It's a lot um, and it's overwhelming for a lot of folks, but I think that's, gosh, this is where the Salesforce ecosystem comes into play, right? You, you've you got the the wonderful three-legged soul, right? You've got Salesforce to help you with that. You have an SI. Um, if you're sitting in the, the customer um, side, you've got the financial service cloud groups that are also ingesting it, giving ideas on what they're using and playing around in the sandbox. Um, and getting up to speed on a lot of these tools and whether or not you want to turn them on really fast. I think that's really the power of both this technology and at our fingertips, folks that are using it real time, showing us how it's working with um, <laughs> within their tech stack. Uh, and I think that's a really good way to do it. I mean, Ellie has spoken um, very well to, I think, a lot of the license types too, right? You can whittle things down based on what you have today versus where you're thinking about going. And and at least from a customer um, perspective or, or those that are sitting in a house using the tools now, go to, use, use the folks that have helped you build it and use Salesforce to help you think through, put them on the spot. What should I be using now? What are you seeing other... Um, customers uh, using to to do that. So make sure you're not sitting alone, reading through those 600 pages in the dark at midnight, uh, but stressing, <laughs> stressing about it, use the entire uh, Ohana at your fingertips. Super. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, that's great. That's great. 
totally makes sense. Yeah, I'm always as soon as they're released, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into release notes and as everybody's mentioned, they're extremely long. Um I, I dwindle down to um financial services cloud, sales cloud, service cloud, and other potential industries or products that I utilize a lot. Um and then I start to just Google it because there's so many blogs out there that are immediately going to come out with top 10 features for admins, top 10 features for developers, top 10 features for FSC. So you can just go through and really read all those. And they do a good job of even adding screenshots or even um, quick videos based on how they've how they've been using it in the pre-release org, which takes me to step three and four. Pre-release orgs are available so you can get those which have those features built in and you can start playing around with them. Um, and the final thing's Trailhead which hopefully a lot of the listeners are already getting into, but Salesforce released their their Summer 23 badge, and it's, you know, never any kind of, like, difficult hands-on scenarios, but it takes you through a lot of those features, the core features that are mentioned in the release notes. That's that's number 1,001 for you, right, Elliot? Here. Next one on the, on the backlog. One, 1,031. I'll get it one day. It's been a while. I think all of those tips make a lot of sense. In full disclosure, I, I jumped into the release notes much more quickly this week because of our episode than I normally would have. But I also don't try to digest it. Certainly didn't digest all 600 pages ahead of our conversation today. I did, you know, go and read through where I thought there would be some interesting items and some interesting gold. I also tried back, Dane, to your your question. I tried a couple of AI solutions. The first thing I did is I had been reading about this app called Charlie, which is a document analyzer that sits on top of ChatGPT and you can take a PDF or a text file or what have you and upload it. And then it basically gives you a ChatGPT-like interface to ask questions of the doc. And so I tried that. Uh, All 611 pages or 617 pages, however many pages that is, and I asked it, can you give me a summary of the five most interesting and innovative new features? And it came back with five, all from the first 57 pages. So I don't know that it read the whole doc either. I think it just found got tired. five things that were, they got tired, like like we all would, right? So then I decided to, to try another tact and I said, well, give me the notable new features for Financial Services Cloud. And it gave me six. And they were pretty good, except if you've read the the release notes, right after Financial Services Cloud is a section on grant making for nonprofit cloud, and it included the grant making functionality in the answer. So uh, I think for anybody that's worried that ChatGPT or some of these large language models are coming for all of our jobs tomorrow, I think your your concerns are overblown. I also tried getting it into uh, OpenAI directly uh, using AutoGPT. And I kept running into a limitation that it would only take 8,000 tokens, about, you know, 6,500 words or so at a time. And so it just kept breaking. So more to come. I'm sure that's going to continue to evolve. But I think that uh, I'm going to keep with my my pre-existing techniques of filtering judiciously and, and looking around for resources like blogs and podcasts like this one. So I really appreciate uh, both of your time. Thank you both very much. Uh, let me ask you as we wrap up, Heather, uh, if our listeners are interested in connecting, reaching out to you, where can our listeners find you if they want to connect? 
Oh, the the old boring answer. LinkedIn is a great spot. I like old boring LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time on old boring LinkedIn. I actually reorganized my iPhone a little bit today. I had a lot of buttons on there and I pulled the trigger and I deleted Facebook. So I don't even have Facebook on there anymore. But uh, but but LinkedIn is a, a great go-to. How about you, Elliot? If our listeners want to connect, where's the best place to find you? Uh, the best place, probably same, LinkedIn. Um, Elliot Spence on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter at Elliot underscore S157. So I'm pretty active on Twitter as well, but that's about it for me. What does the 157 mean? That was my first weight class when I wrestled in college. Yeah, I was very against that. Got to do the tie. <laughs> then, I, then I then I went down to 149, but that was it. I was 157 at first, so that's what that dates back to. It all comes full circle. Well, thank you both very much. We appreciate it, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, all. Thank you. All right, and now it's time for this week's Quick Takes. So, Dane, uh, opening up with an article I read, I think I was late to the party. I guess it was about a week-old article, but I read this week that OpenAI spends $700,000 a day just to operate the chat GPT part of their offering. So that's not model training. That's not DALI. That's not the APIs. That's just chat GPT. And the reaction that I saw to that article a few different places was, you know, wow, that's a lot of money. But my reaction was the opposite. You know, the first thing I thought about was last October, Elon Musk announced an initiative to cut spending on Twitter's infrastructure by $1.5 to $3 million per day. Per day, that is two to four times the spend of ChatGPT in cuts. I did a little bit of quick math in my head. ChatGPT has over 100 million monthly active users and $700,000 a day. That's $21 million a month or about 20 cents per user per month. In contrast, Twitter has 450 million active users a month, or at least they did in 2022, at $3 million a day, which we know is at least the amount that they're spending. That's $90 million a month, or about 20 cents per user per month. So my question to you is, for the same 20 cents, where are you getting the most value? I canceled my Twitter account. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think it's it, it's interesting way you do the math. I mean, because seven hundred thousand dollars a day does sound like an awful lot of money until you actually break it down. So I think that was that was keen on your part, you know, to 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 do the math and then just kind of obviously expand your career, you know, in the tech space, and so you know you're. You're looking at these articles and people are like, oh my God, that's a ton of cash. And then you're thinking, mm-hmm. let's break this down. You know, chat GPT is, you know, that, that kind of generative AI has brought a ton of value to a lot of people. I'm a big fan and I, I feel like I'm learning each day how to get more and more out of that platform, you know, so love it. Yeah. Very, very. No, totally. I, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I still have a Twitter account. I, I don't actively use it, but, you know, I use ChatGDP all the time. 
no secret for the, the listening audience, we use ChatGPT to do research for the podcast. I've used it to write code snippets for some side projects that I work on. Uh, I even used it uh, a week or so ago uh, to write something funny and sentimental on a birthday card that I was sending to a friend. So there's a ton of value out of ChatGPT. Uh, and I know there's a lot of expenses at OpenAI beyond just this. Like there's a lot of expenses at Twitter beyond the infrastructure to deliver and keep the tweets going. But, you know, side by side, I think hands down, the, the value is on the chat GPT side. Yeah, and I, I think it's, I've also used it for like some creative kind of use case. You know, so you were talking about the birthday card and, and I was having a conversation with, with a friend, actually a Salesforce industry colleague and a friend recently, and we were kind of talking about that aspect chat GPT. And his take was, okay, so now every time someone sends me like a really interesting or thought provoking message, whether it's in a card or a text or an email, my question is, is that this person or is that chat GPT? And then he was like, you know, what's your take on that? Like his feeling is, is that, you know, we're going to sort of lose our authenticity you know, in favor of like just sounding more interesting by way of chat. And see, and they asked my take on that. And I was like, well, I said, I see your point, but will we all become maybe more interesting and thought provoking as a result of chat GPT? Like, are we, are we sort of in school again? You know? So I don't know. Like I said, tell the value, right? You know, there is a ton of value. I think that from my perspective, I'm a big fan of the large language model technique that is behind ChatGPT, but it is inarguable that it is all derivative. You know, it can take inputs and combine them in new and interesting ways, but it's not actually creating anything new. There's not, not net new creativity. It is a lot of repackaging and restating what's out there. And so while I have used it for blog research, I've used it for podcast research, I have yet to have anything come out of chat GPT that I would feel, <laughs> as opposed to BuzzFeed feels, they can just go slap out on, on the website as ready content, right? It's It's good for summarizing is good for, you know, getting me prepared and read in on a subject very quickly. Uh, it's not great, in my opinion, for truly creating something in an author's own voice. You know, I, I still think I have a little bit of secret sauce to add on on the top of that. So, I, I and I don't know that large language model is the technology that gets us there. I'm not saying that there's not some, you know, form of AI that gets you to true creativity. I don't think large language models gets us there. That doesn't discount what it does do, but it, it does have limitations. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see the story continue to unfold, you know. Well, switching gears, so I subscribed to HBR, and there was an article recently that I was reading titled, How Banks Finally Get Risk Management Right. And of course it, it centers on Silicon Valley bank. As I was thinking about you reading through it while they were talking about how, 
the bank's failure destroyed over $40 billion in shareholder value, which is sh it's a huge number. It's a lot bigger than $700,000 a day to run shots. <laughs> It's a lot of days that get you to $40 billion. Yes, a lot of days. And anyway, the article highlights the in inadequacy of risk management and governance measures. And the bank's failure, as the article was talking about, raises questions about the role of the chief risk officer, the board risk committee, analytical models for assessing risk, yeah, I'd love to pick your brain on that. And then other things like public risk disclosures and then regulatory oversight. What comes to mind, you know, as I share some of those points with you? So it sounds like a very interesting article. I definitely would love to check it out. It sounds like the, the bread and butter of a sound risk management, specifically around balance sheet management. You know, one of the things that came out very early about Silicon Valley Bank in particular was the fact that they did not have a chief risk officer for eight months. So you certainly can't have an empowered and independent chief risk officer if you don't even have a chief risk officer. Uh, I think that the questions will continue to be asked. I, the Fed announced a significant amount of recommendations coming out of you know, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, so we don't see this kind of thing again. Right. So, you know, there'll be questions asked about where was the board uh, at Silicon Valley Bank on some of these key risk issues. And then adult and waddles, looking at the balance sheet, looking at and relationships. This goes back even to some of the things that we talked about in, in our last episode around bringing the data together. We focused around relationship data from the aspect of getting your message out in front of key depositors, key borrowers, key influencers in the bank. There's there's also obviously a concentration risk that goes alongside that. When those key influencers got scared and reacted by not just pulling their own money out, but raising the alarm bells in their network, analyzing those types of network effects, not just from a communication standpoint, but certainly from where you're going to see that risk in your deposits and in your loans. It's an evolution of thinking about in deposit concentration risk. So I think it's it's spot on. Uh, and I think that's actually a perfect segue to an article that I wanted to tell you about that I found. I, I came across an article on Krebs on Security this week that was announcing that it found that a lot of public Salesforce experienced cloud sites are exposing private data unintentionally. Now, the good news is that the data exposures are not a Salesforce vulnerability. It is a misconfiguration in, in these experienced cloud sites that are giving unauthenticated users access to records that should only be available to authenticated users. And so that's important to note. But tell me, what are your thoughts, Dane? Like, have you come across something like this? What are your thoughts? You know, it's a, it's really interesting. So, you know, we're getting close to officially launching our brand, the Workstream brand. They're putting together the content for a privacy policy. But we kind of challenge ourselves to just say, okay, let, let's not just kind of copy and paste, you know, GDPR 
like policy information here. Let, let's really dig into this and make sure that we understand it and that we get it and, and that we're abiding by it. And so we looked at GDPR, CCPA, and NYPA, which is kind of like New York's version of GDPR. So you've got California's version and CCPA, and New York's version and NYPA. And what we did is we, in our content, and again, it'll go live, but our content comes from the perspective of a little less technical and current clearly stating exactly how we're using people's data. And then number two, with how we're protecting it. And then number three, reminding them what their rights are and then making sure that we can deliver on it. And it's interesting when you really dig into it. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I guess I'd summarize it in answering your question. I think that more and more organizations might see like the rise of like a chief data officer with really making sure that person is keeping the organization in show compliant that sort of thing around these privacy policies because it could get sticky this could become messy and it could become an issue you know that that's my feeling on it anyway i definitely think that is is spot on i think for for me it really underscores the importance of having good policies defined around data access, really getting your data classification correct on what, what is sensitive information, what is PII, making sure that you're partnering very closely with your CISO or someone in the CISO office to identify and classify that data. And then really, you know, taking a good look at how you've configured Salesforce and your other systems to make sure that the data is being stored uh, as well as that you're only exposing it out of the people that need access to it, whether it's it's inside your organization or outside your organization. I, I definitely want to make sure I underscore very clearly that this is not a Salesforce vulnerability. It is a issue in configuring proper access to data. Right. And, right. and Salesforce is a very be complicated system. Sometimes there's a lot of, of nuances to get right. There's a, a ton of use cases where a company might want to take data in Salesforce objects and make it available on their experienced cloud site to unauthenticated users, right? That's, that's a good functionality, but we just need to make sure that when we do that, we're only exposing the data that we want to expose and we're not inadvertently exposing data that should be kept private. Yeah, you know, s switching gears, Fred, we were talking about Twitter earlier, and I was never a big Twitter user. I'm probably more LinkedIn than anything else when it comes to social networks. But I read a search not on ChatGPT and <laughs> was looking at an alternative to Twitter, and I, I noticed that in several lists, there's a social network called Mastodon. I'm still getting started, but as I understand, like kind of like the position they're taking as a social network is decentralized, open source, besizing privacy, customization, ad-free experience. So where does the money come from? How is it supported? Not sure about that. Uh, will there be limitations as a result? But yeah, you know, like a federated kind of structure. Uh, 
also want to promote diversity and collaboration. You know, so have you have you heard of Mastodon? I have not. In fact, as you're mentioning it, I just pulled up the website. It reminds me a lot of Twitter. I see a stream of of posts. It looks like some interesting content. I love the idea of having spaces that are a little bit more curated, spaces that are a little bit more on walled gardens, to, to go back to the term from the AOL and, and CompuServe kind of days. A part of the reason I stopped using Twitter is there was way too much noise to the signal. You know, there's still good information there, but the site made it so hard due to, you know, lack of controlling bots due to lack in content moderation to find the good information. Right. And I think okay. they're incented by getting as many eyeballs to sell either placement or, or click through ads, because as, as we all learned, it's, it's expensive, right? Twitter, Twitter's cutting $3 million a day from infrastructure costs as it's just on infrastructure. So these platforms are expensive to run. And as they scale up, I'm just curious about the business model that's going to support that. If it's not going to be ads and it's not going to be subscription, you know, how, how are they going to grow and scale? Yeah. And I think they're, you know, they, they definitely are promoting diversity and collaboration and the collaboration piece is interesting. Like what's their vision for that, right? Like, are we talking about just collaborating on anything that's kind of open source? You know, like, does this become the slack of open source collaboration or is it, is that aspect of Mastodon something that maybe businesses can leverage on like a collaboration social networking platform? Oh, does it take on that, that kind of element as well? Not, not sure. Be interesting to see. Awesome quick takes as usual. It's going to be great to see some of these stories unfold and uh, we've got some things going at the house this weekend. I'm going to be looking for a great barbacoa recipe and thought we go about to jump back into chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are making me hungry and jealous. I love barbacoa, but it was great Dane to talk again this week and look forward to chatting soon. For sure. Take care, Fred. Later. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed episode two of Banking on Disruption. I can't thank our guests, Heather Ryan Christensen and Elliot Spence enough for kicking off our first panel discussion on the Summer 23 release. We have a lot of exciting stuff planned for upcoming episodes, but most importantly, we want to hear from you. Dana and I would love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and ideas for new episodes. Why not drop us a line? New episodes drop every other Thursday, but in the meantime, you can visit our website at bankingondisruption.com for show notes, including a full transcript of today's show. Also, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. And finally, we'd love it if you followed us on LinkedIn and Instagram at, at @bankingondisruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cavena wishing you success in your digital pursuits. <laughs>